when I left Def Jam, I just was like, you know what? All right. So like, I've done this now, you know, I I've had this position and built a media company that, you know, I was a, a minority partner in, in complex. And I've, I've now operated this small part of this enormous corporate conglomerate at Def Jam as part of UMG. And I think it's time for me to do it on my own. First, First I, I say, say, what we're going to do. do. Then you say, I don't know. What do you want to do? What we're going to do, what you want to do. I have an idea. You're going to dig this. The Fly Fidelity Podcast is, is the solution. It's the best. Check it out. You want to get super fly, fly. Details just ahead. Do you love credible content, but, but, but hate how long you have to wait? And who wants super thick and frothy dumpster juice with rat corpses in it? There's a better way. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly Fidelity. Fly. Fly. Fly Fidelity. Fidelity. Fly Fidelity Podcast. Fly Fidelity, baby. Fidelity, baby. Fidelity. With your host, Luke Bailey. Welcome to the program. For two and a half decades, Noah Callahan Bever's confident, compelling, and no-nonsense contributions to hip-hop's media space have made an undeniable mark. In part three of our limited series, exploring his incredible and important career so far, we speak to the veteran journalist about helping to build Complex, working at Def Jam, creating idea generation, and so much more on this episode. Well, we constantly evolve. We've evolved into people, I think, that are more voyeuristic. We want to see our celebrities, our idols, our actors do real stuff. We want to be closer to them. What up, everybody? It's Joe from Complex. I'm Sean Evans, and you're watching Hot Ones. Full size run. Let's talk sneaker news for a moment. Woo! It's 360 with Speedy Mormon. For Complex News, I'm Natasha Martinez. Hey, how you doing? Hey, Rack. What's up with it, bro? God, I know who this is. <laughs> What's up with it? It's on Complex. Yo, well, now you on Complex. What could be a curiosity that people haven't really discovered yet? What could be a crazy next thing? Did you have fun? No. Cheers, Billy. And let's just say she could very well be a superstar in the making. For a lot of people, it's probably going to be the first time they ever heard me really speak. Look at past interviews. You guys said you wanted to be mainstream. Right now. You guys are the mainstream. Look at us. Hey. What's the deal? We're sneaker shopping now. The game show. Oh, I'm gonna buy some sneakers. I gotta come at the fittest. But you're clean, man. I threw on the Air Force Ones to be even more metaphoric, you know what I'm saying? Everyone has a story. The goal is to get people to actually watch the art that we create. You really can't teach style. Some people are gonna be mad or whatever. This is a very fun collaboration. I wanna explore the local culture, and there's nothing better than street food. I'm going to be taking on the Pocky One Chip Challenge. What happened to the tunes, bro? Hot Ones Reebok collab. And it shows you can have these brand partnerships and still be able to have fun and be creative. We want to work with Complex because this is a network that we've grown up with. We truly believe that Complex Networks can take us to the next level. It isn't static. It has always evolved and it continues to evolve. Talking millions of people right now. Bro, I'm ready to leave it all on the table. The zeros are nothing but an urban legend. Okay, that's what I thought too. Vice President Kamala Harris. Hey, Joe. It's my job to always introduce something new to the world. You can make a body of work at an age bad, or you can make a body of work that you can listen to for years and years to come. 
can you maybe talk about reuniting with Brent Rollins as an art director for Complex? What kind of conversations were you both typically having around piecing together different layers? And how important was the audience in every visual communication design decision? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I took over com uh, Complex in 2006, um, you know, I, I inherited an art director from the previous administration and he and I, um, you know, did as much mind melding as possible. And, um, you know, he was very uh, agreeable to pushing the, the book in, you know, in my direction. And eventually uh, that gentleman, Sean, ended up getting another job and, and moving on. And I uh, had promoted uh, his number two, Tim. And Tim and I really took the book and started to push it in a more sort of visually aggressive direction. And we did, um, i trying to think which covers, like the, you know, nerd with, uh, with Cause cover, the Lupe Fiasco and Todd James cover, the Eminem uh, um, with the marquee sign behind him. Um, and that was really like, that was where me and Tim started to get a little bit more meta. And, you know, our goal with the covers started to be like, all right, we want these to really be visually arresting and memorable. And let's play with the logo and, you know, try to sort of make things that are a little bit more avant-garde and definitely stand out on a newsstand as totally unlike anything that you would see. And that's how you get, you know, like um, the cause uh, clips cover where the clips are like uh, action figures in a packaging with cause designing the the, the uh, box behind it. Um, and then Tim ended up uh, getting recruited by Entertainment Weekly, which was kind of his dream job because Tim came out of the comic world. And that was really where he and I bonded because we were both like old school comic heads. Um, but when he moved on, you know, I interviewed a ton of people. Some of them were very talented. None of them were speaking to my soul with their sort of design aesthetic or, or their ideas and um i unfortunately went through many rounds of mock layouts with a bunch of you know really uh really talented people and you know it just wasn't doing it for me and and so at a certain point um i thought well you know there's probably no way i could ever get bread to do this at the time i don't think brent had had like a desk job for probably like seven years or something and he really was notoriously um i mean he you know he'd done tons of freelance work and was very in demand as an art director but just right. he was not um really trying to be uh sort of held down and i know i knew that elliot had tried to recruit him at xxl a few times to no avail um but I reached out and we just sort of, you know, got right back into the groove that we were in, in, uh, you know, the late nineties. Um, and I think, you know, it became an interesting design challenge to, to Brent. And I think he liked that I was really trying to push 
things in a in a more challenging uh direction and you know our, our goal that we would talk about with each cover was like each cover has to be a story and it should not be an obvious story it should be um when you look at it you should feel sort of like you see your your mind invents a narrative that hopefully you know aligns with the overall arching narrative of the talent and but it's visually arresting the kind of image that you remember forever and you know and this is again i grew up obsessed with the work that brent did at rap pages the goody mob cover is perfect the the cool g rap cover is perfect the far side cover with them wrapped in the tape is unbelievable um de la soul at the podium bismarcky underwater i mean i could go through and name 20 of these rap pages covers that, that brent was responsible for and you know at, honestly at the time those were like integral in making me not be a source only reader and to discover rap pages and I, so i felt like let's this is this is how we can win at this game um you know one because we are not necessarily a newsstand driven company in the way that the double xls and the vibes um and the gqs are right um we're winning because we are breaking stories on the internet and getting people to talk about it and i thought you know if if the the sort of language that we're we're speaking in is these remarkable jpegs then you know it, it is it's different to try to compete on a newsstand like a newsstand there's a reason why if you look at like all the gq and vogue covers from you know the early aughts or late 90s they all have like a red gq logo and a white background and like a very flattering close-up portrait that that plays incredibly well um on a newsstand it, it's resting you make eye contact with the star um you know and they've done studies that show that those convert but i thought you know in a world where our stuff is being consumed increasingly online and by the time you know brent joined the team this was probably 2009 end of 2009 early 2010 okay. and um yeah it was 2009 and again by this point it was clear that print was going the way of the dodo and you know the lion's share of our consumption was online so it was like all right let's just make you know these incredible images that play well on you know at the time uh tumblr and twitter um and then eventually on instagram um and we just sort of leaned into that and you know we started with um and we did it also in a very stripped down and clean way um that was also part of we sort of reinvented the the, the language i went on a weird um i don't know i i became very into this Swiss design style of like Joseph Mueller Brockman and that kind of vibe. Um, and Brent was able to sort of take that 
impulse and make something that was, I think, a little bit more interesting, even than what I had imagined. But if you, you know, I really, when I think about our first cover, I believe it was the Kid Cudi uh, cover where he is sort of falling um, back off of, like he's falling out of the frame and grabbing onto the side of the cover. And it looks like he is like ripping back the actual cover and you see sort of space behind it. And the, the logo is distressed. Um, I remember. And, you know, again, the idea there was like, this guy is raging. He is out of control. He's making this very dark, uh, very substance uh, forward music. He had recently been arrested um, on some possession charge. And, you know, and he had a song called Mr. Rager. Um, hmm. It was like, all right, what can we do to sort of take that narrative and put it in an image? And Brent pulled the, um, the inspiration of that photographer uh, slash fine artist, I think his name is Robert Longo, that does the guys sort of like retching in suits um, right. and was like, oh, what if we do something like this? Like he's spazzing on the cover. And then the two of us ping pong the idea of like, well, what if it was interactive? And it was like, he's like almost pulling the cover down on top of himself. Um, and yeah, and that, and then once we saw that, and once I saw that, that was very much like, okay, we, we have a thing. This is, yeah. this is, there's a full story here. And then, you know, you go from there to like the next one was um, the black and white image of Nikki and she's just squatting and looking kind of pissed at the camera. And it's funny because that actually was an outtake. Like we were in between huh. shots and she was, you know, looking like typically kind of uh, annoyed, you know, photo shoots are grueling things, especially for female talent because they have to like, do uh, hours of prep work and then they have to stand in very uncomfortable shoes in very uncomfortable positions. And, uh, you know, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, delays of getting the lighting right and all this stuff. And so we happened to shoot a Polaroid of her just sort of sitting in that pose, looking very uh, nonplussed at the situation. And, um, and me and Brent were like, yo, this is the image. Um, and, and, um, and we told the photographer, Glynis, like, no, 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 no. All that other stuff was great. The fashion stuff is awesome. That we'll put that in the interior. You got to get her just doing this. And so we had her just kind of like drop into the squat and it kind of looked like upset. But again, I thought that she had just done a whole bunch of covers that were like super poppy, these weird, like cartoon, almost like fake Murakami type thing. And it was like, in my head, I instantly, I was like, oh, Nicki Minaj is not a cartoon. And again, this idea that like, there's been so much sort of artifice around her character. Um, but she also just happens to be like the most skilled MC, you know, of her sort of generation. Um, and there's so much more to what she's bringing to the table than just kind of like these props uh, and these costumes. And so here we have her just sort of like almost seeming like stripped down in black and white 
looking kind of annoyed at the world and you know the headline and i think it just sold it but again that was sort of the 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 idea it was like all right each one of these things we want to think about the talent narrative and how to sort of draw the reader into that narrative without bludgeoning them over the head with something that's sort of ham-fisted um and obvious but makes them look at it and just think about it for a second I love that. You mentioned the words design challenge a few minutes ago. What would have been some of the earliest challenges in communicating a visual narrative for your earliest collaborations together? I mean, again, I think it it, it was just us getting aligned on what kinds of stories we wanted to tell and how we wanted to tell them. Um, but again, I you know, I think so much of my aesthetic was, you know, informed, frankly, by the things that Brent had done earlier in his career. And mm -hmm. so we already sort of had that common language. So it, I don't, it's hard to even describe it as a challenge because it just felt like once we started working together, the idea started flowing and like, you know, I was very, uh, intimately aware of each of the talents stories and so then it just became a matter of like you know he would sort of sit there on my couch and we would he would kind of like it was almost like a opposite therapy session of just like him forcing me to talk out why I wanted to put this person on the cover and what was interesting about them to me until I said the part you know, the quiet part out loud. Um, and, you know, we got, I think, very, very, very good at that. And that's, the, you know, I continue to work with Brent to this day um, on some idea generation stuff. And like, that is the part about him as a creative that I find to be so compelling. He, he steps back, like so many designers, um, concern themselves with the sort of like kind of the 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 exterior parts of the design sort of the most superficial parts and they're worried about you know when you're a designer you think about like sort of all the doodads and all the like well the type treatment oh I like this font right now and I'm into this and I like these kinds of lines and whatever and with Bren that's like the last part of it. He wants to get to the sort of core idea of what are we communicating? Why are we communicating it? Like, mm. what's the feeling we want the viewer to have? And I think that once you actually are able to articulate those ideas, all the rest of the design sort of informs itself. So he's able to see it through this very specific and distinguished lens different than any other designer you'd worked with in the past. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's like when you, when you boil these sort of design challenges down to their most sort of core emotional values and, you know, and then the thing is that he has this, you know, virtuosity as a designer that he can then, he has the tools that whatever that, core idea or that core emotion is that you're trying to communicate, he knows what, 
what the things are that will elicit it. What what's the design composition? What's the sort of font? You know, what sort of design language? You know, is is going to communicate that exact feeling? Um, and so I think having that sort of library in his back pocket, combined with that sort of uh, you know instinct to constantly boil things down to their most sort of like core values uh, just yields a, a more thoughtful and superior product. Well now, many different versions of a cover or format and structure with an issue generally run through um i mean the covers typically the way that would work is you know we would we would land on a talent that we would want to talk to um and then brent and myself um and uh the photo editor gina um would sit and sort of talk about again like what was i trying to why am i selecting this person what am i trying to communicate right. and at that point you know brent and i would sort of volley ideas images inspiration you know and i you know i might send him you know sometimes i was very prescriptive about the ideas like when we shot kendrick and i was like it's all about kendrick as a writer and like he's, I know that he's been going through draft after draft of this To Pimp a Butterfly album. I don't think we knew the name of the title at that time, but I knew he had made a whole album and scrapped it. There are these photos of Ernest Hemingway at his typewriter um, from, I don't know, probably like the 40s or 50s. Um, anyway, so Brent and I are talking about, you know, what's going on with Kendrick. He's in between um, Good Kid and... He is now two years into working on the next record. And, you know, I've, I think, I think we had had dinner with Dave Free. And so we knew that he had sort of like made a whole record and then scrapped it um, and was, you know, rebuilding a new record. Um, and so, you know, what I sort of pitched to Brent was like, I was like, you know, these, this is, this is kind of my ideas, like him at a typewriter. And this idea of him as a writer and going through drafts and like, so then Brent and Gina start talking. They decide like, oh, you know who'd be perfect for that? B plus is an amazing photographer. He did a lot of the great stuff from rap pages. And, um, and then Brent and B plus come together and they take my idea of the typewriter and then add this sort of extra layer of what if like you actually have letter forms floating around him as if they're sort of like coming out of his head. Um, like he's organizing vocabulary in his head. And, you know, what if we capture it in camera? And that was a sort of, that was a big thing with 
a lot of the stuff that we were doing was we we wanted to do things that people would think were Photoshop, but do them capture them in camera. And um, you know, Kid Cudi was a great example of that. Like we actually did have him on a white psych pulling back the white psych. So what looks like him pulling the cover on himself is him pulling a giant white curtain on himself. Um, or like we shot uh, uh, Seth Rogen and James Franco on a desert island together. And it was sort of like that old cartoon where like these two guys are on the desert island and one sees the other one is like a ham sandwich and the other guy sees the other one as a hot dog or whatever, a hamburger <laughs> and a hot dog. Um, but so like we we did that but we instead of just shooting them on a green screen and like faking it in post we actually built out a set of like a fake island set um yeah and so that was kind of you know something that we all we felt like really would add to the authenticity and i think for brent you know um so much of the stuff that influenced him was from you know the late 60s and early 70s when you know everything was captured in camera because there just there wasn't the you know computers were not an option um but i think it gave a richness to the to the to the ideas yeah so typically we you know we come up with that they would volley and come up with those ideas and so it's like you know i throw them something they throw something back at me i i toss it back we shoot it and then we get all the images and then we go through it and and you know, we always went into it with sort of an open mind with the idea that we want the best uh, image to win. And a perfect example of this was um, we shot Kid Cudi in, I want to say probably 2014 and, or 2013 maybe. Um, and he was sort of staging a, it was this, this was one of his, I don't know, his sort of post wizard comeback. And I had always really loved, there's an amazing Spider-Man cover by Mike Zeck um, from Craven's Last Hunt, um, where Spider-Man is like literally crawling out of the grave. Um, it's sort of one of the most iconic comic covers of the late 80s. Um, and so I sent that to Brent and he sent that to the photographers, Juco, or Gina sent that to the photographers, Juco. And they shot that and we went and we, we captured that in LA, but Juco had this idea of what if we put him in sort of like a plexi coffin filled with red water that looks sort of like blood. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. Whatever. Yeah, sure. Um, it sort of looked very, uh, I don't know, 2001 style. And we shot it. And at the end of the day, like we got the images back and Brent threw up my cover. And then I was like standing there looking at the, the images of him in the, this sort of uh coffin of blood. And I was like, dude, Dope. this is so much better than my idea. Like, yeah, like mine can be the, the first right-hand page in the, in the spread, but like this, this is it, you know, this this feels like today it feels like it's a story like you look at that and you know it demands you to sort of build a narrative in your in your head and it's not you know my idea was cool but it was and and the homage 
to Spider-Man was cool, but it was very ham-fisted compared to how sort of subtle this is. Um, and, you know, and so that, and that's, that was kind of how it would roll. So it was just sort of like trying to find the best idea. And, you know, when you're working with, you know, genius level talents, like, like Brian or Gina, you know, you end up getting really, really great work. When you think of all those first time covers, all those exclusive stories you ran, do you have a favorite issue? I mean, probably the, uh, the Twisted Fantasy cover, um, just because, I mean, it was like, it, it doesn't get any better as a rap fan. Like that experience was surreal and one of the most incredible weeks of my life. And then also the whole like eight month or seven month road to getting that issue done was uh although very stressful at many times ultimately very satisfying and you know it's it's the one story that every year on the on the anniversary of twisted fantasy at least a couple people on twitter find me and hit me up and thank me and tell me how many times they've read it over and over again how they printed it out and put it on their wall and all that kind of stuff and so yeah so that that's probably the the number one for me can you speak to those months leading up to that cover talk about those months what was inside those months what did those months look like well you know when kanye invited me out to hawaii there wasn't really an agenda per se it was just sort of like hey i want good energy and people that know hip-hop i'm trying to make a real rap record um you know, Q-Tip's going to be out here and RZA and Pete Rock and, you know, Rick Ross and and Nikki. Just, you know, can you come out for, for a week? And I was like, all right, sure. And, you know, we talked about it. And I was like, are you, do, do you want me to be documenting this? And he was like, well, it's early. Like, we'll figure that out down the road. No, no, I just want you to like, just be here to be part of this. Right. And, you know, so that week was unbelievable. I mean, like, you know, in what world do you like get up in the morning and go have breakfast with Q-Tip, the RZA, Pusha T, Kanye West, Don C, Virgil, and Consequence, right? Like unbelievable for five days in a row. That's a pretty, you can imagine just like yeah. us sitting around having conversations about music. It was just like, you know, this is the kind of thing that the 16 year old in you dreams of. Yeah. Um, and then you get to the studio and you can already tell that they're working on a masterpiece. Like this is going to be a genre defining classic. Um, and you're, you know, watching these verses come together and, and, you know, in some limited capacity, like participate it, right. You know, Kanye's way of writing was so communal and like, obviously I'm not offering any raps, but the way that he would work in that moment would be like, he'd be trying to think about power and would just kind of like ask questions. Like, what, what do you think of when you think of the word power and like go around the room and then like build off of different people's answers. And then, you know, once in a while it would end up turning into a line for him. Um, and even just to be a participant in those conversations, um, you know, is like a real, those are real pinch me moments. Um, 
So all of that. And then, of course, you know, I, I go back to the city. And then he comes back to New York in, I want to say, June, debuts Power, and then uh, holds up at Electric Ladyland to finish the album. And so then again, for the next, whatever, three to four months, I'm stopping by the studio, you know, I don't know, weekly, maybe sometimes a couple times a week. Um, and, you know, just listening to what's happening, hanging out. Um, and at that point, I don't I got the feeling that even though he had really basically the lion's share of the album done when he got home from uh, Hawaii, he wanted, there was something else that he was looking for. And I think maybe they, that, that he got them in like blame game. And there was maybe one other last minute addition to the record. Um, but in the process, he ended up making all of the uh, Good Friday songs. Um, and then, wow. you know, and then of course that happens and getting to be, you know, in New York during that fashion week when good music absolutely, you know, was running things and they, they had like the, you know, flash mob at, uh, on, on, um, West Broadway, uh, on the Thursday night. And then they dropped, uh, the song, you know, the good, uh, whatever it was the, the one with common um that night at, at like 10 o'clock on not right you know the, it was just the energy was absolutely electric and then you go from that into him performing you know premiering runaways on the uh vmas you know right. in the red suit with the mpc and all that it was just like incredible um and then I, i'll say uh, uh, you know on the funny side also, at this point, Kanye had, um, I don't know, he had hired recently like a fashion consultant, I think, to help him, I don't know, try to ingratiate himself and, and get taken a little more seriously in the, in the high fashion world. And this person had decided that, I don't know, Complex was perhaps too lowbrow or something. And that he had done a XXL cover that where they had let him write his own story, in which I think he felt like was like sort of catered to his core and to the rap, the core rap audience. And I I don't know, I got the feeling he was very conflicted about doing the story. Um, and we had this really funny moment I talked about at a complex con a couple few years ago. But um basically for weeks leading up to the like i'm getting down to the wire on shipping this issue and he's completely non-committal about doing a proper interview about doing a photo shoot and you know every time i ask he's like yeah yeah come to the studio like let's talk let's talk and you know invariably i end up spending you know six or eight hours at the studio right which at the end of which he's like oh, i still gotta think about it i still gotta think about it and i'm getting to the point where i'm like Dude, I'm like, I'm about to blow through every deadline. And I talked to Don C on the side and Don's like, look, man, honestly, I just think he doesn't want to do it, but he doesn't want to tell you that he doesn't want to do it because he likes you and because you've obviously spent so much time around the project. But there's just, 
reticence there. And I'm like, oh. so he's like, I don't know if I were you, if you have a, back, a plan B, I would roll with the plan B. And of course, at this point, it's now the 11th hour. I don't have a plan B. It's too late for a plan B. Um, so I sent him an email on a Friday night, like, uh, hey, man, uh, I just want you to know, like, I've blown past my deadlines waiting on this answer from you. And I'm in a situation where I have to run a cover story about Twisted Fantasy. And, you know, I am i don't hold anything against you for not wanting to participate. That is, look, our friendship is not about, you know, you giving me some exclusives or anything like that. Um, so please know that, like, I'm just going to write about my experience being around you making this classic record. And I'm, you know, it's not going to be inflammatory or there's no, there's not going to be any bitterness on my part. You know, we'll, I'll, I'll use some old photos of you that we can license and uh, you know, I'm going to just try to make some lemonade out of this. And, you know, I, I send that at, I don't know, like 11 PM or whatever on a Friday night. And um, at eight in the morning, I get a phone call. And it's yay. And he's like, yo, uh, what are you doing right now? And I'm like, uh, nothing. I'm, why? What's up? He's like, yo, can you meet me at the crib? You want to go on a bike ride? And I was like, uh, sure. And I, ironically, at the time, my lady friend lived like literally two blocks from him. So I'm like, yeah, let me just uh, hop in the shower real quick. I, I can be there in like 20 minutes. Um, right. So I show up and he's got two bikes because this is actually the day after um, I don't know if you remember the infamous tweet where he said, I make great decisions in bike stores. Um, yeah. So he had just bought a new bike, I think, which was had inspired his desire to ride. And the two of us go downstairs on bikes and I'm like, you don't need any like security or anything, dude. He's like, no, nah, man, my security is that I'm secure. Like, I'm gay. <laughs> Who's going to do something bad to me? And I'm like, all right. So we just get on the bikes, ride over from his crib to the West Side Highway and ride up to 125th and back. And we just talk and, and he's like, basically, he's like, all right, so we, let's just talk about this cover. I'm like, all right. I'm like, look, man, I'm just, I'm at the point where I'm about to lose my job. Like, this is, if I don't have a cover, like I have advertisers booked, I have print dates, I have time booked at the printer. I'm... I'm really exposed here. Um, and he's like, look, man, I just don't want to do an interview. And I'm like, that's it? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, we, we can do it. I hear, I'll have Fabian send you some images. And Nabil was in Hawaii. So he's got a bunch of images. And um, you just tell me who you want to talk to that worked on the record and I'll hook you up. And huh. I was like, in my head, just like, you know, we jump through these hoops for like six weeks of me asking right. about this and you like not really want And now I offer this solution. All right. But ultimately I was like, Oh, all right. You know, I was like, I'm just going to write a story. That's my experience uh, that week with you. And then, you know, we'll talk, we'll go talk to like the other collaborators on the album, Nikki and Ross and Pusha, et cetera. And build out a package around this. And he was like, great. I love it. Nabil has all the behind the scenes photos. It'll be amazing. 
And we ended up doing that. And at the end of the day, it was, I think, as powerful, you know, and I think arguably maybe more memorable than some of the Q and A's that he did around that time. Um, because it really gave, you know, hardcore fans like the deepest glimpse they had had to date at his process um making records there's no way to overstate how crucial kanye's success was to the success of complex and i think you know it was really a mutually beneficial relationship between him and the magazine from day one. Um, you know, before I got there, um, he had a relationship with the book. Um, I think he sort of appreciated that aesthetically and, and sort of, you know, content wise, it wasn't trying to be just a rap magazine. It wanted to be, you know, a style magazine. It wanted to be um, a culture magazine and, you know, it it didn't want to live in any of the sort of boxes. And, you know, he worked with a gentleman named Tim Hotep on the uh, style beatdowns column. Um, they did several of them um, in the years prior to me getting there. And then I think we did two or three of them um, once I got there. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, his ascent validated the, the sort of foundational principle of mm. the magazine, which was mm. that, you know, there is a convergence community that, you know, whose glue is shared cultural interests. Um, and, you know, at that time in publishing, things were very balkanized by gender or ethnicity um, you know, frankly, not because of the uh, the editorial staffs necessarily, but because of that's how advertisers looked at, at magazines. They put you in buckets based on, you know, their marketing budget. Um, and that sort of created these very rigid boxes that most magazines were, you know, lived in and complex, you know, mark sort of foundational ideas around what the magazine would be were to just absolutely deny that premise. That was really Mark's, you know, foundational premise for the magazine was this idea that like he made Echo and none of the magazines that he was forced to advertise Echo in actually reflected the demographic makeup of who was buying Echo or his sort of aesthetic vision for the brand. Um, you know, he looked at it like I'm forced to like buy ads in the source and double XL, but like Echo isn't a rap. It's not like trying to be a, a rap clothing brand. We have to buy ads in Maxim um, and GQ, but like those are both very mainstream um, in who they're trying to appeal to and very, you know, I mean, Maxim and, and stuff and stuff are very lad mag and, and kind of like goofy and, you know, um, a bit lowest common denominator and you know and then he would buy ads in in gaming magazines or in in you know ew 
Um, and again, none of these things felt like necessarily like a clean fit. And so he just was like, well, let, let I want to reverse engineer a magazine around this idea because I, I know I'm selling a ton of t-shirts. So I know that the audience exists. And I think that, you know, when you sort of champion a, at the time, counterculture idea like that, um, it really, really helps when you have sort of a, you know, crusading figurehead who can embody these sort of core principles and yeah. become kind of the face of this movement. And that very much was what Kanye did in that, in that period, you know, from like 04 to like 2007, 2008. Um, and, and so our tides rose together. And I think obviously, you know, Kanye's global success um, really outpaced complex complex's success, um, particularly in those early days, but he legitimized the sort of intellectual project and the premise. And I think that, you know, when he succeeded, when when he did all the stuff he did around graduation and the, the fits that he was rocking and the Atmos sneakers and, you know, all of the sort of, uh, you know, uh, brands that he was rocking from Japan and, and the, you know, Murakami and the artists that he was dealing with, like, it created a curiosity in the audience that Complex was then able to fill them in on. Um, because, you know, in certain sort of aesthetic ways, we were very, very closely aligned. Um, and, you know, a lot of the, you know, the people that he was interested in, the cause, the Todd James, um, you know, the Futuras, like these were all people that I knew from my, you know, Mass Appeal days um, yeah. and people that I was interested in from, you know, being a kid in New York in the 90s from buying GFS t-shirts and, you know, Pervert and Echo and Kingpin and all of those brands. Um, and, you know, that whole world had sort of been sidelined in the late 90s and early aughts um, with the rise of the Sean Johns and the Rockawares, um, the FUBUs and stuff. And Kanye really sort of like shifted the focus back to kind of, you know, what you think of like traditional streetwear um, and, a, and a sort of more eclectic uh, mix of inspiration. And and so, again, I think we, we were able to create this sort of reciprocal, reciprocally a positive relationship between us well it's interesting isn't it because in its original form complex is very much similar to a japanese catalog back in the day isn't it oh i, I mean absolutely when i mean back when the, you know we used to have the buy the buyer's guide and that was you know half of the book um for the first i don't know four or five years and that was completely informed by mark at traveling abroad and getting you know Japanese magazines, which were literally looked like catalogs for the most part, but catalogs with the most amazing, you know, sickest toys and craziest sneakers you've never seen. Um, and, you know, and, and I think Mark in his sort of curatorial way was able to, to see that and remember what it felt like being 
a kid getting the East Bay catalog and bridge that gap and be like, all right, let's create something that like has a sort of familiarity because all these kids, we all, everyone in the nineties, we all got the East Bay catalog, but challenges them with products that are so far outside of the box and so niche um, and, you know, very like inside baseball and make this where like kids are buying it just to see things because they, they don't know about these things, you know? Um, Cause you know, back then also like so much of style was informed by like just watching music videos. Um, there wasn't, you know, sort of this fashion was still a very insular community that, you know, your sort of average consumer was, you know, largely unaware of, um, you know, people were buying stuff at malls and, you know, occasionally there were some little boutiques and stuff, but, you know, this was like when that shift began to happen and, you know, Mark had built this book that was like perfectly designed to facilitate that conversation. And then you have Kanye out here, you know, um, really being sort of uh, an advocate and an evangelist for, for this movement. And of course, the internet was in part to credit for such a seismic shift of complex as well. How did you handle that, that shift? Well, th that's the other thing that I think is also, you know, really crucial when you think about this, because, you know, again, when when I was growing up in the 90s, like kids very much lived in these sort of aesthetic boxes, right? Like the Ravers wore the Jinko jeans and had rollerblades and, um, right, you know, all the very sort of like psychedelic inspired clothes. Like I was like the backpack rap kid. So I had the backpack. um you know, uh, ski goggles, um, a polo, very oversized denim with some like weird EQT uh, Adidas. And then you had like the jock kids who had like the starter jackets and the Jordans, um, you know, and each each one of us was like a very, you know, very separate, both as friend group, like socially, we didn't, you know, we sort of like, we're cool, but we didn't, mm. didn't really overlap. Even like, when you're talking about like those three groups, like we all listen to kind of the same music, but like the the rave kid listened to like a lot more like house and like EDM type stuff. You know, me and my friends were like strictly underground, super lyrical, keep it real rap. The the uh the jock kids listened to more like mainstream stuff that was on Hot 97 at the time. Um, and then you know, and then you had like the rock kids who had wore like Nirvana t-shirts and like jeans with holes in them um, and vans. And there wasn't this sort of sense of like each person can curate their own identity based on these like, you know, sort of uh, uh, a, a mixed bag of um, sort of identifiers. And the internet, I think really allowed that to happen where you could curate your identity in a much more unique and bespoke way. Um, and you combine that with, again, like what's going on at Complex plus what's, what Kanye is doing, because Kanye is coming in and he's like, he's sampling from, you know, Daft Punk and Brooklyn, uh, you know, electronic rock groups, um, you know, Cuddy's there using Ratatat. Um, 
and uh, which we'll call it uh, the crookers, etc. And so there's again, there was much more of this feeling of like, you know, similar to probably like you know New York in the early '80s, where you had this like, you know, uptown meets downtown moment mm -hmm. at the art galleries with you know Keith Haring and Andy Warhol and Futura and Hayes um, and Patty Hurt. I mean, uh, not Patty Hurt, Patty Astor, you know, all in the mix. And so it was really a sort of like a return to that. But with the internet, I think it, that aesthetic idea was able to scale in a much broader way. Um, and then to get to your, your question, you know, that happened right as, you know, the uh, economy collapsed in 2008 and print magazines um you know just became extinct for the most part and um you know complex was forced to sort of you know figure out a new uh paradigm and revenue model um and what we were able to do was reposition ourselves as a digital first brand um and it was a a you know very uh wrought and uh laborious process but you know um i think that again we were well positioned culturally to make that move and you know we had uh a real economic incentive to wrap our heads around it and and flip the business you know honestly when you know, you have a conversation with the staff that's like, look, everyone, we can all work 50% harder. We can all go home. What do you guys want to do? Um, most people are going to step up and say, all right, let's work 50% harder. Um, and that's what the team did. And we went from being, you know, a team of 12 that makes uh, a bi-monthly magazine to a team of 12 that makes a bi-monthly magazine and everybody blogs every day. Um and we just quickly caught fire um, on the internet. And, you know, again, that was combined with um, on the business side, them building out the complex network. So we had this sort of like um, inherent relationship with some of the most powerful and successful blogs um, in that mm. period. And our audience just started to scale and started to scale and started to scale. And, you know, after some really, you know, a really painful year and a half, two years, um, you know, the staff went from 12 to 20 to 35 to 50 to, you know, uh, on the content side, almost 200 people when I was, when I left in 2017. Here's Wale on the 50 best albums of 2013. I cannot believe you are not in the top 10. Jerry, it's fine. Who the hell is on this if you're not on it? Jay-Z Magna Carta. Who is Jay-Z? What's his last name? If he's so good, what's his last name? Z. Is, it, is it Zimmerman? Is it some Jewish kid from Hewlett, Jay Zimmerman? 
ASAP. I went to school with Jay Zimmerman. Every, He's not him. Ariana Grande. Ariana Grande. I, I had that at a coffee shop one time. It's coffee with cinnamon in it. Kalayla cut for me. They're pretty good. I like them. Is um, Juicy J on there? Tell me Juicy J is on there, and I'm turning this table over Juicy right now. Juicy J had an uh, Juicy J had an incredible album. Incredible. I about, read Complex. It's not about the I list. I know what's on Complex. It's not about these lists, Jerry. It's, the list it, is what determines who matters in this business. Maybe I got to work harder. No. You've already done your best work. It's behind you. If you met them on the street, you know what they would say? What's that? That they have total respect for you. There's something personal here. It's personal. Maybe How are you not number one? Maybe you got to call them. No. I'm going to tell you what to say. You get on the phone with him. You tell him, get some security, number one. And I want you to use the N-word. Use it a lot, because then they'll know you're Jerry, serious. You know that's not my and don't style. say N-word. Say the style. full word. It's not my style to call up a place and with that type of temper. It's not my yeah, style. Well, it's going to be it's your style. It's not my style, Jerry. You got a new style. It's not my style. We got to come down on him. We got to come down on him hard. And we got to come down on him in a way that they'll never forget. Maybe you're right. You know I'm right. Get him on the phone. Oh, we're gonna blow up now. Good day, sir. Um, can I speak to the uh, president of Complex? That's right, right to the top. Uh, well, do you have a, a like a, a head writer? You want the top? Yes. Go I to the top. Can I speak to the top of Complex? The please? top of Complex. Yes, the top. This is Wale. That's right. The, the rapper. The rapper Wale. Get angrier. Okay. You gotta be angry. Complex. You mentioned learning about the value of lists while you were working at MTV. Take me through a typical day at Complex, compiling a list, and what kind of roles did those lists play in allowing you to progress towards certain long-term and short-term objectives? As we transitioned the business from being magazines to uh, an internet property, you know, we had to figure out what formats would work online. And there was a, a few things that, that were at play. And one was just like, how do you create a piece of content that is shareable, that people are you know going to be so engaged by that they feel inspired to want to share it or talk about it? Because um, this is the early days of social. This is you know probably year two of, of Twitter. Um, and... And then on top of it, the way that internet properties in that period monetized was display advertising, which you get paid per impression. Um, and so, you know, it was sort of like, all right, well, I know that if we, people like how we are curating culture, what is a the sort of like simplest way to tell a story or tell a story about like a cultural phenomenon in a digestible way that is shareable. Well, lists. People love to have their their taste disputed or confirmed. Um, either way, it's a it, you know either you, you get mad and feel like you should work at the magazine, or you they you get it right and they feel like. Um, you know, their taste is aligned with, you know, right. quote unquote gatekeepers or whatever. Um, and you combine that with the fact that then you can also lay it out over a 
series of slides and you can serve ads against each slide. And so then all of a sudden it's like, you know, all right, if we can get 50,000 people to click on this list and each one of them clicks on, you know, an average of 25 slides, well, we're serving, we're serving a good amount of ads and I'm likely going to be able to keep all these people employed. And how crucial do you think those lists were in helping Complex achieve this peak we were just talking about? Oh, I mean, I think that became a, a definitive part of the brand um, in in that, you know, sort of uh, early stage of building the site from like, say, 2009 to 2012. Um, and it was, you know, I, I know that at a certain point, it it got to a place where um, people became a little bit cynical about it, both on the staff and off the staff. Um, but I also it was a it was a really exciting time because there was a huge amount of information and knowledge about music and streetwear and sneakers that had not been indexed on the internet yet. Um, you know, all of the stuff that I had grown up reading happened in magazines that didn't exist anymore and you couldn't find them anymore. There was, it was impossible to go read old issues of rap pages or old issues of the source or vibe um, online. And so it was like, oh, this is our opportunity to sort of retroactively create an archive of information about all of the most important things within this world that can live in a perfect world, you know, and uh, of course, links get broken and things get taken down as you, you know, relaunch the site over and over and over again. But we were able to create this canon of stuff. And I, I still maintain, like, if you go through the archives of complex.com, it has one of the most extensive bodies of knowledge about rap music uh, online, you know, and, and there's stuff like the making of the infamous or the making of the game album or, you know, the 50 greatest uh, Chicago rappers or, you know, we like we went through and just thought about every facet of the scene and the culture and what was going on and tried to create, you know, a comprehensive body of work around that. Um, and, you know, uh, again, I, it's unfortunate because a lot of that stuff, I, I know where it is, but unless you are specifically searching it out, um, it's pretty hard to find. And a lot of the links are broken and a lot of the images got taken down because of lawsuits and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, from a creative standpoint, it was, I, I found it very engaging and a lot of fun to do all that stuff. Um, you know, I, I think there was a lot, a lot of information, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of that we did on the site was, um, the best rapper alive each year in hip hop. And, you know, it's funny because that that's an article that they still to this day at Complex publish every every January is, you know, who's the, who's the best rapper alive um, and then who are the run, runners up. And I, I maintain that if you go through that list today, it gives you a really accurate snapshot of what was happening in rap in you know in all of those moments um and with like a consistent pov and some really great writing from people like you know rob kenner and dave Bree and ernest baker um david drake uh lauren nostro you know uh, 
a ton of really, really talented, thoughtful uh, authors. Was there anybody back then whose feathers you maybe ruffled that surprised you the most? Uh, Based off of a list. Well, I I, I see where you're going. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, well, the most, yes. The most infamous one was Wale. Um, okay. And, you know, Wale had kind of like a contentious relationship with, with the magazine sort of from day one. Um, I think someone on the staff had made a joke at his expense in like a early roundup of new rappers. This is in like two, the 2008 period. Um, and I remember he came up in the office with his publicist when he was dropping his album, the one with the, the Lady Gaga single and was like storming around asking like, who wrote that joke? Like, I want to talk to that person. Like, why, why did, why do they think that's funny? And, you know, which of course we're like, dude it, it was like one line i don't think anybody on the staff really you know i we, we knew that he wasn't psyched about that but you know we covered him you know many many times after that I, we put rick ross on the cover with andy samberg and did a spread on the mmg artist including wale and again I, you know th there was no animus on on our part um and then at the end of 2012 i guess or maybe the end of 2013 i can't remember the year at this point um we did our year-end list um and of best albums and he did not make the cut on the top 50 and this there was no um again it, it was not a personal thing or something that we really gave any thought to you know the way that those lists came together we would all sit around Everyone yeah. would nominate the records that they loved. We would argue about them. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, like myself and, you know, the music editor and a couple of senior people like Joe would sit around and argue, you know, sort of adjust the rankings to make sure that we felt like it, it represented a coherent point of view and vision uh, on, on music. And... Yeah, his album, I think it was the one that had like the um, sculpted face cover. Um, just didn't, it never got brought up. Like nobody nominated it. Nobody talked about it. And, you know, and I don't know if that was like just a brain fart on the part of, you know, the team or what, again, but again, no, it was, there wasn't a moment where we sat there and were like, no, nah, we shouldn't put Wale on this. It's just like when everyone was, you know nominating their favorites it just didn't come up and Wale uh called the office and um you know talked to Incinal um and uh was uh you know a little irate and uh you know told us to get the security and you know that he was going to come see us and that he was tired of the disrespect too much and, da -da 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 and this kind of stuff So you think it's responsible, for, you think y'all being a responsible publication by continuously to, to fucking like, just do like all that petty shit, like, at this point, you know it's gotta be personal. And I don't want, anybody, you telling me it's not personal, it's like a bold-faced lie. Like, to be omitted from every type of list that y'all do, or, or be at the bottom of it, or, or every type of way that y'all can omit me, y'all will. So, I just need to know, like,
like, if you if, if anybody's ready to keep it on honey with me and be like, yeah, it might be, so you might have rubbed somebody wrong years ago. Uh, in some way or fashion, because you know I've had no interaction with 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 the, with the company in years. So to be every time be omitted from everything that y'all do, it's got to be something. So I'm just I'm trying to find out if you're gonna be the person that tells me that, or you're just gonna give me the song and dance. Well, no, I'm not gonna be the person that tells you that. I, it's not a personal thing, man. It's you know we sit. You mean to tell me, Juicy J, I'm better than not? And, you know, I, I came from, you know, Vibe Magazine during, like, the peak of the East Coast, West Coast beefs. And, you know, Rob Kenner, who had been the features editor at Vibe, was was working as, I believe, maybe the music editor at the time. and Or the features, uh, he was the features editor. And Rob was like, yo, we have to publish this. Like, you can't, artists cannot threaten journalists. It's just like the the only thing that we have as journalists to protect ourselves from violence is, you know, the platform to put make these things public. And, you know, that that is our responsibility. Like if you, Noah, as a journalist are walking down the street and you see Tom Cruise open hand slap somebody like you don't have the luxury of like burying that. That's a this is a news event that happened, you know, and it, right. and you have firsthand knowledge of it. You have to, you have to write about it. And similarly, you know, if Wale has called the company, you know, it's one thing if he is like calling and just like complaining, but as soon as he invokes, you know, violence and, you know, Rob and I both come from the nineties where like rappers did put their hands on journalists, like not, super often but often enough that it was a thing yeah. um and you know i i had received threatening voicemails you know in in the early days of my career and i remember you know there was infamous stories of um you know chao getting punched in the face by master killer and you know um at one point i remember reading some interview with one of the early source guys where like the every editor in the source had a gun in their desk because of the beef with Cypress Hill. And, you know, these were like real things that happened. And so Rob was like, look, we have to air this. And it, it just so happened that uh, I had hired Jinx probably like, I don't know, a month earlier. And we were making pilots for what would become complex news. And um, we were like, well, this is, this is how we're going to kick off complex news. Um, we have a extremely, uh, you know, spicy story here and we have audio and, you know, it honestly, like to do this story justice, we need to provide the media because, you know, otherwise it's just a, he said, she said, and we have this recorded. So we launched complex news and, um, Jinx, reported on it and it it set off that whole sort of wing of of um the company um and yeah and then it became a thing that you know uh thankfully two years later 
um, we were able to all come together and lampoon and like have fun with. And, you know, after that, Wale would like come to our 2015 um, Christmas party just to hang out. Uh, you know, we ended up working it all out. Um, but yeah, I, and I will say one of my favorite things that I ever did at Complex was, you know, two years later, um, Wale's publicist comes to us and is like, hey, Wale's coming at coming with a record. I know obviously you guys have this like really bad relationship with him. We want to fix that. He's ready to fix it. Everyone's grown up like, you know, he feels bad about yelling at you guys. Um, and, you know, look, obviously he wasn't going to do anything. He was just like really pissed off. And we we're like, look, it's been years and totally we get it. No one here harbors any grudge. And uh, Jason, uh, his publicist, um, was like, oh, you know, also he's got um, Jerry Seinfeld narrating the entire album and Jerry agreed to do one PR thing with him to support the record. Um, you know, do you have any ideas? And I was like, yes, this is the idea. We shoot them in like a Seinfeld looking diner and we shoot a video that is basically, we imagine Jerry and Wale are sitting together and Wale looks at his phone and realizes that he's been excluded from this list and he tries to have a very measured approach about it and tries to be like, no, oh, it's fine. You know, it's no big deal. Everyone has their own taste. And it's Jerry Seinfeld. They puts the battery in his back to get him to call and make these threat, these threats to the editorial staff. And, um, Wale and Seinfeld thought that was hilarious. And I wrote up a quick little script and we pulled off the cover and, you know, Jerry took my script and ad-libbed a bunch of other jokes and added on to it. And, you know, it, it turned into one of the sort of things that I just have the most sort of, uh, you know, personal pride in just growing up as, you know, it doesn't get, any better than Seinfeld. And so to have this moment of like actually collaborating, even in the loosest sense with him, um, was really a tremendous career moment. Incredible. You talked about complex news. You've also recently talked about pitching for MTV. What would have become uh earlier prototype for everyday struggle, which of course later on happens and you develop over at Complex. How many different versions did Everyday Struggle go through in the beginning? And can you can you share any standout memories developing the show? Yeah, I mean, so you know, there there the the making of Everyday Struggle, every, you know, there every, every room has four walls. Um there's many different stories because each each actor in this sort of has different different um parts of it but basically yeah i sat down with um paul rosenberg and elliot wilson and they were ready to shutter rap radar and were kind of trying to contemplate what would make sense because they felt like well you know we spent whatever the better part of a decade building this brand and it has a lot of currency in in the community what what should we do with it and i was like oh man i think you know, at this point, this is when we are going extremely hard into video. 
Um, and I know that a lot of the sort of media dollars are moving in that direction. So I was like, look, to me, I think there needs to be, we need to figure out how to make the first take of hip hop. Um, and we need Elliot to be like the skip, right? But we need to match him with a retired rapper because that that's sort of the dynamic in these sports shows that works. You have like a journalist and you have a retired athlete. So you have two different perspectives. Um, and, you know, hopefully you get people who have divergent views and, and will be ready to like argue. Um, and um, Elliot was like, okay, cool. That I'm, I'm with that. Like, and Paul was like, all right, well, who would be sort of your ideal, you know, um, ideal sort of uh, retired rapper foil. And I was like, well, I mean, number one has got to be 50 Cent. I'm like, 50 has the most like cutting analysis of the music scene. And, you know, he's a walking quotable. Like every time you put a mic in front of him, he's going to just say the greatest stuff. And, um, you know, Paul was like, look, man, realistically, he's got power going on. Like, there's no way we're going to get him to to do that. Um, and also, I think 50 and, and L don't have the best relationship, which L sort of informed me of. And I was like, well, all right, then the, there's only one other option to me, and that's Joe Budden. Because at the time, the Budden podcast had, you know, I was probably like two years in, two and a half years in. Um, and I had just, I remembered very distinctly, like probably six months earlier, walking to the bathroom in the in the bullpen and uh, this guy, Angel, that worked for me, um, had like a crowd of the editors around him. And it was, they're all listening to the Budden podcast where he is sort of describing, I think, like subliminals that Drake had taken at him on some song. Um, and I just like walked over. And I'm like, oh, what's everybody standing here for? And they're like, oh, man, we're listening to Budden podcast. Yo, you know, he's saying Drake stuff, da, 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 da. And I stood there and listened to the guy, you know, go off on this like extempor extemporaneous rant uh, for, I don't know, five minutes straight. And it was like, I know he's doing this off the top. Like this is, that's a rare skill to be able to like speak off the cuff um, with that kind of like linear coherence and and to do it and be entertaining and be funny. Um, and it just was like, oh, this guy, he has like something really, really special. And so I, I sort of tucked that away just for like, yeah, we should do something with Budden at some point. But anyway, that, so that, you know, they, they tell me about this with 50 and I'm like, oh, well, Budden would be crazy also. Um, and at the time, I also think Budden had maybe been teasing this idea that he was retired as well. Because, um, you know, obviously like recording artists don't, other than like Jay-Z, they don't really retire. They kind of like just slowly go away. But I think Budden had recently sort of said like, I'm not rap. I think it was after the uh, Slaughterhouse second album had not come out for whatever reason. Um, and so Elliot reached out to, that, to, to, to Budden and hit me back that evening and was like, yo, Budden's in. Um, and unfortunately, the bureaucracy at Complex at that point, there was a lot of cooks in the kitchen on a management level and trying to get that show greenlit um, was 
challenging. Um, and it took me longer than I would have wanted, probably, I don't know, maybe like six weeks go by. And in that time, um, I've heard after the fact that I think like Budden and, and Elliot were actually shopping the concept around. I think they met with like GQ and a couple other uh, potential homes for, for it. And, um, and then in that time, um, Elliot gets a job offer from title and comes to me and is like, look, you know, I have this amazing job offer. Obviously we've been talking about doing this thing that I'm very creatively excited about, but they're offering me like a full-time salary and benefits and all that, you know, a real stable situation. And I'm like, look, Elliot, you know, I, it took me quite a bit to like sell this to the powers that be here. Um, I have a green light to make this thing for three months. Um, I believe in the project, but you're my friend, you're my mentor. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that you should gamble everything on this working out. Um, You know, if there's a, maybe there's a way we can make both work. And he was like, ah, I don't think they're going to do that. Cause like titles getting into the content space. And so like, it'll be weird if they're, if I'm like the, you know, chief content officer of title, but I have a show that's on complex. And I was like, dude, I totally get it. Say no more. Um, so I hit up Ian and button and I said, look, you know, this is the situation with Elliot. I think he's out. Um, if you guys are still interested, um, you know, I'm, I'm down to try to figure out a new, a new host. And they were like, yeah, like, look, we, we still think the idea is gold, you know, from day one, Ian was absolutely convicted that, um, Joe was going to be the Howard Stern of hip hop. And so we, we got together and we started talking about, um, potential other co-hosts, um, and, you know, I ran through sort of all of the obvious names from the big radio stations um, in the major markets. Um, and Joe was like, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. Like, I want this thing to kill the radio shows. Like, this is, we're, mm-hmm. this is, we're doing digital, a digital show. This is the future of media. I don't want the past of media. Like, we need to be in opposition to that. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, there's this kid, DJ Academics, that has this YouTube channel. Are you familiar with it? He's like, ah, I know the name. Like, I've heard people talk about it. Like, what's his deal? I'm like, I honestly have never see- seen the dude before, but he's got a really animated voice. And uh, we sat in my office and like, I think I played a couple of his sort of like videos um, from one of his channels. Um, I was like, you know, he's a little uh, controversial because he's got the Chirac thing. Um, but, you know, he, he talks really confidently and I think he is very, he's like a champion of like, at the time, this was like SoundCloud era. I'm like, he's really like a champion of like mumble rap and like the SoundCloud stuff that frankly, Joe, I think you are probably not the biggest fan of. So I think this could actually like have some tension. Once he listened to a couple of things, he was like, I like it. All right. Yo. So hit him up. Let's, let's get something on, uh, Let's get something on tape and see how it feels. And I was like, all right, cool. Um, and so we moved forward. And then going into it, I was interested in trying to host the show. 
because, you know, sort of had been my idea. And, um, you know, I like the idea of sort of helping to moderate something like this. Um, but obviously I was chief content officer at the time. So I knew doing a daily show was not really going to be realistic. So I was like, we should also get Nadeska to do it because, mm-hmm. you know, one, I don't know if I even have the skill set to pull this off. Um, and two, this is going to be extremely time consuming. We're talking about shooting this every day at 7 a.m., um, four days a week. Um, you know, there's, there's I, I shoot covers and, you know, I have all kinds of other commitments, advertising, you know, meeting with advertisers, whatever. Um, and then we went and shot two pilots, one that I tried uh, to moderate, which I would describe as like, uh, I don't know, you ever see like uh, videos of those like, people on the bucking Bronco uh, rides at like <laughs> uh, honky tonk bars. It was yeah. like that. Um, wow. It was, I did not have the capacity as a host to um, rein in those two guys. Um, but we saw that there was a, a really natural chemistry between the two of them. And then when we, when we put Nadeska in, she had like, she's just so much more pro on camera than I am or was at the time um and she also just has a great sense of how to like pull it in and calm them down and you know mm. let them bump heads for a minute but then pull it pull it back and direct it and sort of keep the conversation moving in an in an organized way and you know it was just a, abundantly clear to all of us like as soon as we did put that on tape, it was like I was like uh, I'm I'm out. This is not going to work. Um, but Nadeska is going to be awesome at this. Um, and that once we did that, you know, once we made that decision, I think we spent probably two weeks building out all the sort of like design aesthetics for the show and the set. And uh, we probably did I don't know, maybe two or three more sort of test runs. And we we launched in April of 2017 and you know it, from day 1 it was just there was a certain magic there i think uh i think elliot texted me when he saw the first episode and was like i'm going to give you a solid b on the on the premiere that was you know for for being the first thing that was pretty good um and, you know, and, and the guys got their chemistry going and, and it really started to build. And that, of course, came to a head in the episode with Yachty. Um, and Joe just had that epic meltdown on Yachty that was just, you know, the stuff great internet is made of. Um, <laughs> and it yielded dozens of memes and all that kind of stuff. Um and then from there, you know, then there was the incident with the Migos guys at the um, BET Awards. What was your reaction to that seeing that for the first time? Uh, I was glad that it was just the stuff of funny memes and that nobody actually got hurt. Um, you know, um, I knew that, you know, like what, what we were doing was definitely more confrontational as content than um most of the stuff that was going on at the time but i uh, you know i didn't want anyone anything bad to happen to anyone no. and uh, you know so i i was glad that it just made for like 
a tense moment and some, you know, unforgettable internet. Um, but yeah, that was, it was definitely a very stressful moment with a lot of calls behind the scenes and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it, all, all of which played out in real time on uh, academics, Twitch over the next few days. And, you know, it, it was uh that was a, that was a tough little period but the 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 team got through it and i you know i maintain like i would put everyday struggle you know it's up there with young tv raps and rap city as some of the greatest media uh, about rap music ever and you know i think if those guys had been able to hold it together and if complex had been able to you know hold together its relationship with uh with bud and it really it might have gone down you know as the number one um and the the only thing preventing that really is just that it, it was only like nine months um of the sort of that team you are still listening to this episode and enjoying the podcast why not become a patron of fly fidelity at patreon.com slash fly fidelity becoming a patron means you are directly supporting our show and helping us to create a new episode each and every week it also means that as a thank you for being a super supporter you'll be able to access exclusive content to you including patron updates offers and discounts a monthly secret podcast early access and so much more so after complex you end up going back to the recording business and you're appointed for the position of executive vice president of brand strategy at def jam and you end up working closely with paul rosenberg can you talk about that role and some of those duties in helping to not just redefine, but reimagine such an iconic and important label? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, Paul was uh, taking over as the chairman of Def Jam and, you know, wanted to sort of uh, bring in a new energy and try some things that had not been done before at a label. Um, and so he brought in Stephen Victor to run the A&R department and myself uh, to run brand strategy. Um, and the idea was just to have me be sort of a jack of all trades that can help out with content um, on a marketing side, that can oversee brand partnerships as, as a sort of revenue driver for the business, um, and um, and also to develop, you know, some real brand affinity um, for Def Jam and to remind people what the Def Jam brand means. Because I think, you know, in the streaming environment, um, it's become very hard for labels to assert a specific brand identity. And I think, you know, particularly within the major label system, that's even harder because, um, you know, you look at these, the rosters of most of these labels and they're, uh, you know, a sort of scattershot potpourri of different genres and tastes and they don't fit together. Like when you think about, you know, peak era Def Jam, whether it's, you know, uh, J, X, and Ja, or, you know, and, and, and Red Man and, and, and uh, Method Man, you know, in, in like that 98 era, or, you know, 
Slick Rick and Public Enemy and LL, um, you know, in that sort of 88 era, um, there was a real through line between like with the artists and also the way that the, the label presented the artists. And so, you know, um, that was kind of like the value proposition that, that Paul really wanted to get across. And um, so it was a somewhat amorphous role. And, but it was, to me, it was interesting as someone who does love that brand. So sort of passionately and deeply um, and to be able to get up under the hood and like, try to, you know, figure that out and then figure out how to monetize it. Um, and, you know, I, I can be honest, like working in the major label system is not for me. Um, I learned that, but uh, I'm also, you know, I learned a lot, like running the brand partnership team there, you know, I had to deal with selling, you know, not only coming up with ideas and executing them, but actually selling them to clients and papering the deals um, and that, you know, like it was that experience that gave me the confidence to create idea generation and to feel like, you know, I can do both the business side and the content side. You've talked about working with Rosenberg several times throughout the last couple of episodes in our conversation. I'm curious as to what those first six months of being at Def Jam looked like working alongside Paul Rosenberg. I mean, Paul is just a brilliant marketer um, and and has like a great ear for music. Um, and so, you know, doing what I was doing, it was really, it was really a, a refreshing and exciting um, sort of career moment for me. Because one, I just, I like Paul and I'd known him for 20 years, but also to be in a place where, you know, I had had bosses at Complex and, and at Vibe um, who were able to challenge me on the business side and teach me and and sort of like be a, a great counterbalance to me where I have these ideas and this understanding of the audience and they can help me sort of like uh, focus them and um, turn them into products um, and, and then sell them. Um, and with Paul, you know, not only did he understand that side, but he really had a, a sort of, you know, deep interest and understanding of the sort of nitty gritty parts of branding. And so, you know, we would go over the most minutiae, like just, you know, fonts and, you know, compositions on design things. And, mm. you know, and he would give me like really like, substantive and thoughtful notes that always rang true and I felt pushed me to be a better creative. So not long after Def Jam, another huge moment happens for you when you get the chance to collaborate with Cypress Hill and Z2. Talk about writing your first graphic novel and manifesting this dream of yours as a fan of both rap and comics back then. Yeah, well, this was a, this was a, a really fun project that kind of fell in my lap. Um, you know, I, I left Def Jam um, at the end of 2019 and was intent on la launching Idea Generation. And myself and my business partner, Helena, um, put together the, the, the whole plan. We had a pitch deck. We were pounding the pavement, meeting with different people, meeting with brands. Uh, we shot a pilot with Futura. 
Um, and then the world came to a stop uh, on the 13th of March, 2020, um, because of COVID. And, you know, we, the whole thing was completely sidelined and we, you know, it was, I mean, every, you know, everyone globally had no idea what was going to happen or how it was all going to play out. Um, and so, you know, I had taken the family out to uh, our place in Long Island, uh, our summer house, and just to have more space. And I was just out there for, you know, several months, you know, doing what I could to work on, um, you know, our pitch materials and and the pilot and all of those things. Um, but also kind of knowing, like, I can't actually endeavor to start this project in earnest because... Uh, you know, people aren't even flying yet. And at some point, um, I kind of got a, the creative bug bit me to try to, you know, do some drawing. And then that led me to thinking about wanting to make a comic. And so I reached out to an old acquaintance of mine, Chris Robinson, who um, worked at Marvel for years. Um, and he and I had gotten drinks once or twice and just to talk shop about comics and the complex and whatever. And he had always said, like, hey, man, when you're ready to write a comic, let me know. I want to be your, I want to edit your first comic. And so I, I hit him up out of the blue and I was like, hey, I got a couple of ideas for comics that I'm like trying to, you know, this is what I'm thinking. And I'm sort of like, you know, throwing these ideas around. And he's like, well, these are great. Why don't you just write it? Like, just send me a script, man. And I was like, well, because I've never written fiction before and I've certainly never written, you know, in the comic format before. Um, and I don't really know, you know, um, exactly how I'd go about doing that. And he was like, huh, well, how do you feel about some on the job training? And I'm like, uh, great. Why? He's like, well, I actually just left, uh, uh, Marvel at the top of the pandemic. I guess they had a, they furloughed a bunch of people. He's like, I got furloughed. And then I, I got a job offer like two weeks later to go to this um, to this other publisher, C2, that specializes in music licensing. And I'm like, okay. He's like, so, and the first project that they dropped on my desk literally like three days ago was a Cypress Hill graphic novel commemorating the first album. Are you a Cypress fan? And I was like, uh, yeah. The first Cypress album was like, you know, a definitive album for me that mm. I rocked that album a lot in you know eighth and seventh and eighth grade and um you know that 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 is that is really a uh, a classic and he was like cool well all right so here's the deal these, these are the terms and um let, let's I'll get you on the phone with the guys and you know come up with a story and put it together and that was pretty much it. I, you know, I interviewed um, the group members each, like, you know, for, I don't know, two or three hours each and so. cobbled together a sort of lightly fictionalized version of their story. And they were like very, very gracious in allowing me the creative breadth to, you know, not be super literal, but to honor the sort of, uh, you know, uh, vibe and intent of their story um and um and yeah and so I, so I, I wrote the scripts and it was funny because i didn't the time i couldn't really 
I had to think about it visually, um, you know, as someone that draws. And I, uh, so I ended up having to like do thumbnails of every page to figure out exactly like how much information I could convey in, in a given page. Um, and then um, Chris, you know, lined up five artists and I sent them my thumbnails and the scripts and they came back with these uh, gorgeous pages. And that was that. The story also features a few guest appearances, doesn't it, from some of the characters that were referenced on the first album, like Officer O'Malley from Hole in the Head and Sister Maggie from Stone Is the Way of the Walk. What was it like yeah. revisiting that album? Well, that was the you know I I I felt like they they built this really rich, you know, psychedelic, violent world on that record, and. I wanted to mine not just their sort of biographical story, but also, you know, sort of blur the lines between that and the fictionalized world that they had created on the record and turn it into one sort of coherent story. So, mm. yeah, that became kind of like my goal is like, all right, how do I, I want, I want this to tell their story and honor their bio, the bio, biographical information that, you know, of how these three incredibly talented guys came together and made this incredible record. But I don't want to do it super literally. I want to do it in a somewhat figurative manner. And so it was kind of like, all right, let me just like take these moments from this and marry them all into, you know, um, into, into a sort of... Uh, larger coherent tapestry um and yeah and i you know and that's the thing when i when i look at that i i'm really proud of it i feel like it gives you a concrete story and i also you know made real efforts to put as many of the sort of interesting you know hip-hop side characters that made their way into uh those guys story um, so, you know, getting Mr. Bill from Def Jam in there, um, or, you know, Russell in the background, um, or, uh, Joe the Butcher, um, mm. or the Booyah tribe, you know, and uh, Everlast, like, and, you know, creating a bunch of cameos and really showing, you know, the community that they were a part of, um, mm. as well. Which takes us to now. Let's talk about arguably your most personal and passionate project to date. After being a flag for the culture with Def Jam, what was the motivation for taking your career to the next level and developing idea generation? And what does it mean to you two decades plus into your career? 
You know, I mean, it, it was really coming out of Def Jam. Like I said, I, I had this, I felt really empowered because I had grown their, um, you know, their, their brand partnerships business from a modest six figure number to a, a pretty robust seven figure number. And, you know, in, in 18 months or two years and it, you know, when you're an editor and particularly being an editor growing up in the nineties and early two thousands, you know, they used to sort of treat us like racehorses. Um, like back in the day when I was at Vibe, like we had no information about like what was sell, you know, how the magazine sold, how, how many ads we were getting, how the revenue was looking. It was just make the creative product. And, you know, when I worked at complex, uh, you know, my bosses there were much more transparent and did a lot more to sort of educate me. Um, and, you know, Rich and and Moksha and 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 all the guys that that sort of ran the business side, you know, were were a lot better about sort of pulling me in and making sure that I was, you know, aware of how that part of the business was working and, you know, really being, um, you know, getting a better understanding of the sort of uh, the levers that were being operated that were, you know, dictating the budgets and all of that kind of stuff. And um, so, but, but the thing was, was that still, I never really dealt with the clients. Occasionally I would get sort of like paraded out and, uh, you know, I would kind of do like the sort of dog and pony show, but, you know, that after that, obviously the, the salespeople would maintain the relationships with the clients. And so, you know, if they told us we have to bend over backwards to keep this deal on the table, you know, I was like, oh yeah, okay. You know, we got to jump how high kind of thing. Right. And being in the position of coming up with the creative, selling it through, and then managing the relationship with the, the advertiser at Def Jam really kind of empowered me and made me feel like I understand how this works you know, I think that I can do this. Like, I think that I can, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a great salesperson, but I think I can walk into a room and, you know, have a good idea and explain it with some conviction and some enthusiasm and hopefully walk out with, you know, some backing, <laughs> walk out with a check. And, um, so yeah, when I left Def Jam, I just was like, you know what? All right. So like I've done this now, you know, I, I've, I've, I've had this position and built a media company that, you know, I was a, a minority partner in, um, in complex. And I've, I've now operated this, you know, small part of this enormous, you know, corporate conglomerate at Def Jam as part of UMG. And I think it's time for me to do it on my own. Um, and, you know, my uh, associate from Def Jam, Helena, um, and I started talking about this, you know, as we both were getting kind of like, um, you know, ready to move on from Def Jam. And um, I had this idea that I, you know, I'd done uh, an interview show called The Blueprint at Complex that was fairly successful. Yeah. And I was continue to get like great feedback about it everywhere I would go when I was uh, at Def Jam. And I felt like, you know, there are ideas there that 
I didn't really fully develop. Um, and it was a cool show, but it sort of like teased some, um, some things that I, I think could be developed into a full 360 media brand. And like, what would that look like? You know, if we define, you know, more specifically what, what the topic of the show is and, and really anchor it in creative entrepreneurship and then not only make it a show, but develop a full brand around that. And what does that look like? What do the social handles look like? You know, what, what does a slate of content look like? Um, and, you know, Helena was like, all right, that sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm in. Um, and, you know, I, I'm very good at many things, but uh, operations is not my strong suit. And she is, you know, not only uh, a creative, but also incredibly uh, good at creating systems of organization and, um, you know, sort of uh, running the operations side of things. And, uh, and then I found my third partner, uh, Trisha, who's a friend of my wife, who I deeply respect. She is a, comes out of the marketing world. She was a superstar in marketing. And, um, I, you know, actually just started with a conversation where I asked her to look at the initial deck that Helena and I had put together to pitch this idea. And she had so many great ideas and insights for how to improve the offering, um, that I was like, Hey. I don't, you know, I know you have a lot going on um, and you are a very in-demand uh, marketing executive. So I will not take this the wrong, you know, way if you're not interested, right. but would you have any appetite in being a partner in this business with myself and, and Helena? And she was like, bet, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. Like, kind of speaks to what I was about to ask you in terms of the idea today was you talked about these ideas that she had and how those ideas helped elevate the idea generation as it worked back then. What kind of ideas did elevate the idea generation as we know it now today to be? Well, I think it was really just bringing the goal of educating and inspiring creative entrepreneurs um, in into focus as a kind of North star and mm. using that as sort of guiding light and something that has to anchor everything else that we do. Every post on social, every series, every podcast series we do, every video series we do has to sort of all drive towards this larger narrative of empowering the next generation of creatives. And, you know, and then also in addition to that, because, Trisha's worked on the client side before and been, you know, she had an agency called Narrative um, that was very successful. She understood how to craft the off offering in language um, that the brands, you know, um, look to speak in, right? Um, you know, I had been sort of uh, spoiled when you, you know, you're representing... Uh, a storied legacy brand like Def Jam and you have a roster of incredible talent like 2 Chains and Fab and, you know, um, Jadakiss and all these, you know, Bieber and Kanye. Um, 
it's very easy to walk into a room and sort of sell the dream um, when you're doing it on, you know, with, a, a, you know, so like when it's, a, when it's just a decade of dream, um, you really have to one, be that much more convicted, but two, also be able to anticipate what the clients are going to be looking for. And so she was able to really take these kind of like broad ideas that I was having and like help focus them. And then Helena was able to sort of take that and operationalize it into, you know, an actual functioning business. Um, and, and we have this really great sort of, you know, uh, three-way chemistry between us uh, and this real balance of skills and, you know, but shared ambition and shared vision. As a young music journalist, my goal was to understand how musicians made their creative decisions. But as I moved up the masthead from reviews to cover stories, from editing sections to editing a portfolio of properties, my interest evolved. Now I wanted to know how the creators I covered thought about things like innovation, strategy, and management. And the more that I pulled at these threads, the more that the audience responded. So I partnered with Trisha Clark Stone and Helena Ox, and together the three of us created Idea Generation. A 360 media platform, Idea Generation exists to educate and inspire the creative entrepreneurs of tomorrow. And in no coincidence, the brand about creative entrepreneurship is itself an exercise in creative entrepreneurship. So here we are launching our first of many products, an interview show exploring the intersection of art and commerce. If you've ever had a big idea or dreamed of building a business on the back of your creativity, please tune in and join us on this ride. Welcome to Idea Generation. What makes a great interview? What are the qualities that make for an exceptional one-to-one conversation in your opinion? I think being able to engender a level of intimacy and understanding with a person um, and also being able to confront someone and challenge them. Um, and I think that if you can do those two things um, where you're sort of able to create a rapport and a, and a level of intimacy where the person understands that you understand them mm. on a fundamental level it, that can sort of get them to open up. And then I think when you have the confidence in yourself and in your own curiosity to challenge the ideas or the actions or the thinking of the, the person you're interviewing, Nine times out of 10, it creates a dynamic where they want to meet that challenge. And in meeting that challenge is when they sort of provide the most valuable information. Um, I think, you know, and and for me, I think what I try to do is is those two things. And then I try to not compete with the talent or talk over the talent. Um, I think I know that's become like a very sort of as, as interviews have become casual um, and everyone is doing interviews. There's a, a lot, you know, there's a, a lot of people do a lot of things that I personally just am not into like doing an interview with a laptop on your lap, looking at your questions. Like, I feel like, 
I don't, when I'm talking to someone, I don't want anything to take them out of me listening to them. And I don't also want to be distracted. Like I want, I have my questions in my head in a loose framework of what I want to, where I want to go and what, what I want to, you know, what, what, uh, threads on the sweater I want to pull on, but it has to be, I have to be able to go with the flow of the person's train of thought. And, you know, and, and I don't want to be in a scenario where I'm talking over them, competing with them to be funny or, you know, likable or whatever. Like, it's not about me. It's about me unlocking the greatness in this person um, and giving them that platform to sort of put their best, most thoughtful, uh, most insightful self forward. Speaking of greatness, you're two and a half decades into this journey in career. When you think of all of the artists and all of the great minds you've interviewed over, over the duration of this journey, do you have a dream interviewee? Is there somebody, is there a dream interview for you at this point? Um, I've never interviewed Jay-Z and I would love to do that at some point. Um, or even, that's actually a lie. I have interviewed him, but only once over the phone for a secondary for the MJ50 cover story. Um, and it was like five minutes and, and I've had a few sort of like, you know, fairly protracted one-on-one -on -one conversations with him over the years. And I think he is just such a cogent, smart, strategic person. Um, I would love to talk to him on the record, um, you know, at, at some point, I just think the way his brain works is so fascinating and so compelling. Um, so he's, he's probably the number one that I have never spoken to that, you know, uh, I would be super into. And then of course, you know, there are like, you know, Tarantino and, and mm. Scorsese. And I, you know, I haven't really gotten to interview sort of the upper echelon in some of the, you know, like film and entertainment, um, you know, Christopher Nolan would be fascinating to talk to as well. Um, trying to think, who else? Yeah, those those are the people that I, you know, I'm I'm the most fascinated by. At some point, I would love to interview uh, Kim Kardashian as well. She's someone who, like Jay, I've had a, you know several occasions to like have fairly protracted conversations with. And I think she is a fascinating, uh, incredibly canny person. Um, but I haven't gotten to sort of explore that in a professional setting yet. What's next for Noah Callahan, Bevo? I am just trying to build this business and take Idea Generation to, you know, be a household name. You know, we, we have built this business, you know, self-funded. We have never taken a dollar from anyone. It's been, you know out of my pocket and on the dime of our sponsors and the brands that, uh, you know, um, that, you know, believed in us. And, um, you know, every day is just another brick in the wall trying to, to make this thing 
as as big and as real as possible. Um, and it's, you know, it's incredibly gratifying. It's also incredibly scary. Um, but, you know, when we get it right and when we land the deals and when we do the activations, the, it's unmatched, you know? Like going down to Houston to interview Bun B and having, you know, a line down the block, that's, there's nothing that matches that, you know, um, for an event, for a brand that I made with a deal that I sold through, you know, with a brand that believes in us, um, you know, that is incredibly gratifying, you know, as a professional, creatively, all of that. I wish I could show my appreciation for this podcast. I wish I could respond to it somehow or be notified in the future when Fly Fidelity updates because it's so great. But I don't think there's a way I can do any of those things. Uh-oh. You're wrong. <laughs> Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. My people thought you whipped me where you were.